Hi there, I'm Dan Jones. Welcome to the podcast. Here I have conversations with people whose work intersects with climate in some way. I'm an oceanographer, and I started this podcast a couple years ago because I love talking with and learning from other researchers. I'm really thrilled today to introduce my guest, Professor Catherine Hayhoe. Professor Hayhoe is a climate science communications hero, both to myself and to many other people. Her uh, outreach efforts are really amazing, and she reaches communities that might normally be disinterested or even potentially hostile when it comes to the subject of climate change. Professor Hayhoe is a climate scientist, a professor at Texas Tech University, UN champion of the earth, and she also writes and produces a series called Global Weirding that you can check out on YouTube. Uh, she has TED Talks. She has loads of excellent just communications work that's up online that you can find. And I'm really glad we had this talk. We had a great talk. I really enjoyed this. We talked about her teaching, uh, a little bit about climate justice, a good bit about her pathway into science with a focus on some of the transitions or thresholds in her life and in her career, because she's had a number of them. Okay, let's not wait any longer. I just want to go ahead and get right into this conversation with Professor Catherine Hayhoe. Here we go. Hello. Good morning. Morning. Hi. Professor Hey how uh, it's good to see you. Thank you. Yeah, nice to meet you virtually. Likewise. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've got a very professional looking setup there. You've got a nice there's just a clean background. Mm-hmm. It's you've a even, screen. Oh nice. Mm-hmm. A white screen. Yep. It even looks like you've got lighting. Is that just from you've got some windows in uh, the right no, places, I, I guess? Uh, so so this is my home studio, so I've got lights. Uh, I've got uh, panels. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> it works. You turned on the lighting for me. Thanks. <laughs> I <appreciate> it. <laughs> You're going to make me feel like a real podcast or something. I appreciate that. <laughs> exactly. No, this is definitely a real podcast. Oh, and thanks. The, the sun is just starting to come up here now. So, um, so it's still a little bit dark outside. So we'll get right. more light as we go along. Yeah. Well, thank you for getting up so early to talk with me. I was interested in talking to you about some of the kind of transitions in your life and career. But before we do that, before we start talking about all that stuff, um, thank you for being here. I'm really pleased to have you you here. This is great. I'm really excited to talk to you this morning or afternoon for me. So I thought I'd ask, like, how are you? Like this morning, how are you doing? Like right this instant? (laughs) Oh, thank you. That's a great question to ask during coronavirus. Yeah. So, so um, we've we've been um, essentially in quarantine since March. Um, everything here in Texas, the restrictions are pretty much lifted. People are supposed to be wearing masks, but more than half of the people where we live aren't. Hmm, and okay. coronavirus cases here are higher than they've ever been, oh even my gosh. since March. And this is September when we're talking now. So. You know, after after six months, um, we all feel like things start to drag a little bit. Um, yeah. But I'm very fortunate in that I am able to teach online. Um, my students are great. And the class that I'm teaching right now is a general graduate class. So it's open to students from any degree program across the university. Mm, oh, cool. I'm over the summer to significantly revise it to put a large climate justice component right up front in the very first module. because 
as though the reason I myself am a climate scientist is because of this, I, as a scientist, had always had a kind of traditionally started with uh, what is climate and weather and how does it affect you and how do we know it's real? But I think mm-hmm. the events of the past six months have really brought home to us how justice is at the foundation of all of the challenges that this world faces. And so when we talk about something like climate change without immediately putting that frame on it, I think we're actually doing our students an injustice by failing to connect the dots for them directly. So by st- you're saying like traditionally we start with, well, here's the scientific picture and here's our conceptual understanding of it. And then eventually, maybe a few months down the line, you get to, oh, and by the way, it's also a huge uh, justice and inequality issue. <laughs> and Precisely. Yes, so you're, you're turning that around and saying, well, let's, let's hook right into those social issues and these justice issues. Can you give me some examples of like, what are some of the justice is- issues that come up? Not to have you give your whole course here on the podcast, but like, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, um, as you know, I'm, I'm very active on social media. And so when I was revising my course, I put out a call. I said, I'm going to be revising my course. Are there any materials or videos or essays that you find particularly helpful? And people were very generous with their suggestions and recommendations. And it actually opened my eyes to a few additional things that I probably wouldn't have included if it was just up to me. So what I did was I looked for short videos that were in first person. So people from a specific group talking about how they were affected by climate change. Mm -hmm. And I had always been aware myself of how people in poor countries are affected, how how people who are already poor and vulnerable, already living off um, very low amounts of, of money and food and water and resources are affected. So it wasn't hard to find first-person voices from Oxfam, for example. I'm actually an Oxfam sister of the planet, so I knew that they had a program with Indigenous female voices. But um, through talking with people, I also realized that disabled people are disproportionately affected by climate change, even in rich countries, because we depend so much on the services that, um, like, you know, basic services like electricity and transportation. Um, Of course, also people who are Black, uh, people of color, Indigenous voices are very important. I'm from Canada, and a lot of Indigenous people in Canada are disproportionately affected by the impacts of a changing climate, but they're already vulnerable due to many other issues, many of those societal or economic issues, and many of them remnant issues from the way they've been treated by the government over the last decades. Um, The same is often true in Australia as well. And then, of course, as a woman, I'm very aware of the fact that women and children disproportionately suffer from the impacts of climate change. So it was really, um, really interesting to take a deep dive into all of those different voices. And then something else that I added for my students, which was kind of a combination between justice and the world that we find ourselves in today, is I added a journaling component, which I've never done before. So I feel like I'm sort of moving all the way into the humanities a little bit with this course. But I added a journaling component where I give them prompts, but I say, you know, you can answer as many or as few of these as you want, or if there's something else you want to talk about, you can talk about that. Asking them to reflect personally on the issues that they come in contact with during each module of the course, and not so much about the facts, more about their feelings. How do they feel about it? So, so far, we're just a few weeks into the course, but it has really revolutionized the way that I feel like I understand how my students are interacting with the information, and it's even broadened my own horizons, hearing how they feel about the information, not just what they know or they think about it. That's really, that's really interesting. I'm, I'm excited mm-hmm. to hear that. And 
it actually fits really nicely with when I was thinking about what am I going to talk uh, with you about today? You know, looking at everything you've done already and put out online, I thought, well, you know, Professor Heho has done so much for climate communication already. Like, there's so much good stuff out there. So I was hoping to find something um, a little unique. And the thing that I came up with was just the idea of transitions in your life and in your career, like I mentioned. And that, but that's one right there that you just highlighted: the transition from you know, go back a decade, go back 15 years. And I probably, this isn't too controversial to say that I guess climate scientists and climate science communicators, they would have structured everything around that science-based first approach and the facts-based first approach. And there has been, you're, you're one of the people on the forefront of it, but there's lots of other scientists doing the same thing where they're saying, no, hang on, let's shift this the science part is absolutely crucial, but I guess what we've learned is that's not enough. Like just sharing the facts out there, that doesn't really seem to get you as far as, as you might like. Uh, mm -hmm. doesn't, doesn't get us as far as we might like altogether. So that's, I guess that's something you've been able to see over the course of your career, and now you're taking part in that. Is that, I, I only ask leading questions, but um, what, uh, what, what's your reflection on that? Do you... Do you agree with that kind of trajectory and where do you see that going? I absolutely do agree. And what I've found through thousands of conversations that I've had since I moved to Texas is that if we can begin a conversation with something that we bond over, and that's where our feelings come in and our heart comes in. If we can begin a conversation with something that we share, that we bond over, and then connect the dots to the facts, how climate change affects it, we can have a radically different conversation than if we simply begin with the science. But as scientists, here's the interesting thing. We do connect over facts. That is what we bond mm. over. Now, bond might be kind of an uncomfortable, touchy-feely word for a scientist, but that is what we bond over. We have a mutual respect for facts. We have a mutual love of facts and data mm. and information and science. That's why we're scientists, because we love this. We actually do this not only because it's our job, we do it because it's our, our vocation, our passion. Again, that's sort of an uncomfortable yeah. word for a scientist, but our love, that's what we, we do it for, right? Our fascination. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm down for that. I love it. Okay. Yeah, I absolutely Good. do. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, so, so we have been unknowingly or unwittingly bonding over what we love and we share for years and decades. <laughs> but when we talk to other people, we try to bond with them over what we love, but we're scientists. <laughs> and that's the reason why we are. Um, but we're also humans. And I think that in our community, and I'd be interested if you've kind of seen this too, in our community over the last 10 years, I've seen a major shift in terms of the way we ourselves are thinking and talking specifically about climate change as opposed to science that brings much more of our emotions into it. I remember it's been, I think, almost 10 years since I first saw a session at the AGU conference um, called Is the Earth Effed? No, yeah. stars in the middle of that word. <laughs> but it was basically reflecting on, are we screwed? Is this the end? Have we doomed, you know, larger life forms on this planet, including humans. And since then, many scientists who, you know, you could in the past kind of characterize as the objective brain in the jar, so to speak, um, started talking about how they were worried 
and how they were concerned. And I even know colleagues who have changed their research focus entirely because of the implications of climate change for human civilization as we know it. So I feel like we're starting to realize that there's a level deeper than fascination. There's worry and concern and fear and anxiety for the world that we love, that we study, for our families and our children, for people in places that we know and we love, like scientists in California right now and scientists in, in Australia with the bushfires there in January. And so I see a new openness, I think, in our community to realize that there is another level at which we can connect to people. And when we do connect at that level, that's where the truly constructive conversations can help. And there was an essay just this past week by one of our colleagues, Peter Kalmus, He's a climate scientist at JPL. Mm -hmm. He wrote an op-ed in the LA Times, and he lives in, in the LA area. And he wrote about um, the, the wildfires and about the way that climate change is affecting our planet. And he wrote very factually, but very powerfully. He did not mince his words at all. He just laid out what is happening. And then at the very end, he said, and here's how I feel about it. Mm. At the very end. And it was just an incredibly powerful piece of scientific writing. And I don't think we would have seen something like that coming out of our community 10 years ago. Yeah, I love what you said. And mm -hmm. it brought to mind a quote by Fred Rogers where he talks about feelings being mentionable and manageable. But we could add a third line to that, I think. Their feelings are mentionable and manageable, and they're crucial as well in this case because that's how we bond with each other, that's how we form communities, that's how we come together and have kind of a collective purpose and a sense of, oh, let's all go in a, the, the same direction-ish together. So yeah, that's, that's kind of what it brought to mind that mm -hmm. we are starting to, we have been moving away from this picture of uh, kind of the cold emotionless stereotype of a scientist to like actually embracing the fact that we're humans and we can use that as part of our uh, kind of service to the to the world <laughs> that we can use that and and to connect with that. Uh -huh. One of the things that that makes me think about, I guess, um, some people might object to that. I'm trying to just yeah yeah think I of think, a, think I think of a counter would, yes. argument. Yeah. yeah. So I guess the counter argument to that that you might hear is that well, if you bring emotions into it, people will think you're just being manipulative. That you're being emotionally manipulative and you're just trying to tug at their heartstrings, right? And I'm just playing devil's advocate, but I wonder what you would say to those folks, like to somebody saying like, well, just stop trying to pull at my heartstrings and just tell me the facts. I mean, you, you said a little bit about it already, but uh, it'd be great to hear if you have other thoughts following on from that. <laughs> well, you're right, because as scientists, we are trained to be non-emotional when we analyze our data. If we want a result so badly, we might even potentially subconsciously, you know, pick the data points um, that would show that we're right or um, pick the type of statistical test that would be more likely to give us the results that we want. So we are actively and consciously discouraged from being emotional about our work mm -hmm. and with, with due cause. But just because we should be unemotional about our work, even if we don't like a result, if that's the result, you know, that's the result. We should publish it. But that doesn't mean that we, it's possible for us to be unemotional about the results. In fact, I don't think it is possible. Mm 
And I think that when we take that idea of being unbiased and we try to extend that to our entire being, we Mm. are deluding ourselves. Mm. In fact, it's almost like a pressure cooker. The more you shove your emotions down, the more they shoot out the sides in ways that you can't really control. And so people say, oh, well, you shouldn't bring who you are into your science. You should just talk about the facts. But when we communicate or express our science, even there we are making choices about what we say and what we emphasize Hmm. and what we pull together. And we even made a choice about what to study in the first place. And so I truly believe that being as upfront with our biases as possible in terms of both ourselves, being aware ourselves or what our our biases are, but also when we talk to other people, being aware and and telling people what our potential biases are is actually the most honest way to do it rather than trying to pretend we don't have any because we are human. So by definition, we have them. Yeah, that's right. And then also too, on on the idea of, of tugging on people's heartstrings, again, as scientists, you don't argue by tugging on people's heartstrings. You argue with the data. That's how mm. we as scientists argue. But mm-hmm. in the world, with rhetoric, with logic, with the uh, approaches to debate, going back to the Romans and Greeks, tugging on people's heartstrings is exactly the way you argue. I mean, just look at politics today. How does anybody get anything done? It's by appealing to the heart. So yeah. I've been doing a lot of reading during quarantine, and, and one of the best books I read is called The Influential Mind by a neuroscientist called Tally Sherratt, who's based on the UK. And she talked about experiments that show that when someone, when a speaker tells a story that people in the audience can identify with, that their brain waves actually start to synchronize with that oh. of the speaker. Oh my gosh. And so their level of empathy and understanding goes way up because you're tracking through this experience with the speaker. Whereas if the speaker tried to make the same point, just using data and facts, their brainwaves would not be synchronized, first of all, and then their understanding and their empathy and their emotions and their feelings, their heart wouldn't be tracking just their head. Mm, Right. Right. That's pretty astounding. Doesn't that just kind of blow you away? It does, and it had me wondering if our brainwaves are synchronizing or not at the moment <laughs> over a few thousand miles in an internet connection. Um, yeah, like it could a, be. Isn't that physical, amazing? It is amazing, uh-huh. and a physical neurological manifestation of two people talking, <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, uh, that is pretty amazing. I wanted to give along those lines. I wanted to give a shout out to my um, my English composition teacher. My first year of undergrad. This was uh, two thousand two. Um, because she was trying to teach us about rhetoric. And the point that you just made was also a point she was trying to make is like, well, okay, facts are fine, but look, this is not how the world works. You know, people relate to each other based on language constructs and sympathy and feeling a certain way. And it's not really about the facts. And as a um, kind of headstrong uh, first year undergraduate with kind of rather scientific kind of leanings was, that was really hard for me to accept but if i had listened to her back in 2002 i might have been a little ahead of the curve <laughs> i would have been like a little ahead of the game in terms of like you know science communication and thinking about like no no the facts aren't enough the facts aren't aren't sufficient they're they're important but you got to have more than that well you know i had it written down on my screen here it was like a good another good starting question would be like what's something you're excited about right now uh, but it's clear you're really excited about that course. So that's that's awesome. Like the course that you've been redesigning. Yes. And um, anything else? Are there any, uh, uh, and I'll leave this open to you if you want to pick a science 
thing, project or a personal project? Is there something you're excited about right now that you're working on in addition to uh, the course? There, there's something that I'm probably excited and frustrated about in equal measures, and that yeah. is that I'm, I'm writing a book right now, and it's a non-academic book. Okay. So I'm excited that I do have an academic book coming out with Cambridge University Press this fall, mm-hmm. and it is on my research, which is specifically generating high-resolution climate information that stakeholders can use. And, you know, stakeholders is kind of a buzzword. So specifically, I mean, water managers, city planners, epidemiologists, infrastructure, civil engineers. Um, People can use this information to understand how climate change is affecting them in the local area where they live and incorporate that into their future planning to figure out what they're going to have to adapt to even if we meet the goals of the Paris Agreement versus what's going to happen if we don't meet the goals of the Paris Agreement, which then actually helps them understand personally why the Paris Agreement is so important or simply why reducing emissions is so important. So um, that book is coming out already this November. It's it's absolutely done. Um, And Mm. it's called, I think it's called something along the lines of high resolution climate projections. Mm. I authored it with a few colleagues. But right now I'm writing a um, kind of mass market book, a popular book on how do we talk about climate change? How do we have these tough conversations about climate change? And I'm excited to write this book, but I'm also frustrated because I'm on the third draft and you know how writing goes. Hmm. Scientific writing, I actually find once you buckle down and you get your figures, scientific writing is pretty linear. Yep. I mean, you just go yep. through and you you write it and you know what has to go in each section and then maybe you revise the yeah. discussion a bit, but after that you're done. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, and but the, I mean, there's always a problem paper that doesn't go that way, but. Yeah. And, you, <laughs> but and you know, it's, and it's going to be dry to some level. Like you, you, you try to make it interesting, but you've got to put the facts in there and the data in there. So, you know, it's not going to be lovely prose necessarily, but yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You don't have much room to embroider with a scientific paper. No. Um, but with this book though, I'm struggling to get across concepts that as you and I were just talking about that we as scientists are not really trained to get across. And I'm trying to synthesize, um, the social science and the psychology that I've read and this experiences that I've had in real life and the physical science, of course, that we know so well. And um, it's, it's even on the third draft, I'm at the point where just last night I took a chapter and I just tossed it in the bin. Mm, and yeah. I said, I, I have to rewrite this chapter from scratch. So I sat down and I wrote 8,000 brand new words last night. And I'm like, this is the third draft. I shouldn't be doing this at this point. Think, but at the same yeah. time, I'm kind of excited because I feel like the, the new chapter really communicates much better what we were actually just talking about, which is why as scientists, facts are so salient for us and they work so well for us. And when we argue and we fight, we argue and we fight with facts and with data mm. and with information, but in the public, it doesn't work. In fact, one of the scariest things I've learned is that overloading people on facts doesn't necessarily just cause them to shut down which they do if they don't agree with those facts or if they're Mm -hmm. overwhelmingly negative. But there's some indication that our factual overload in this information era can directly contribute to polarization. So in other words, Mm. it's enhancing polarization. Putting more facts into the world can actually increase polarization. Well, (laughs) that is terrifying. Yeah, that's terrifying. Oh my gosh. So that's, that's what the chapter is about. Yeah. And yes. And you had to, yeah, I think they call it killing, kill your darlings when you like have something that you've worked on so hard, but you just have to sometimes make that call. It's like, nope, I have to start over with this. I have to get rid of this. Despite all the hours and love you've poured into it. Sometimes they just, they got to go. Yeah. 
Exactly. So at, at this point, I think like the book's about um, 55,000 words, but at this point I have almost 200,000 words that I've written. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 150 of them have been tossed. And <laughs> it's sort of frustrating because, you know, when you write a journal article, you don't normally toss two thirds of what you write. No. <laughs> so. put, it, put it in the appendix. It's fine. Like if you, don't, if you don't want it in the main text, just throw it in the supplemental information. Information, they don't charge for that. <laughs> no, no. I mean, probably nobody's going to read it, but that's fine. <laughs> it's okay. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh man so um you've got to go at at uh nine right for you is that i do actually yes. yeah okay cool do you mind if we do a quick run through of uh your history and things a little bit you've put a lot out there already so you know i we won't spend a ton of time on it but so you were born in toronto i was that, yeah in this in the city or kind of outside of it or well when i was born um toronto hadn't been incorporated with the surrounding um cities yet. So I was actually born in Etobicoke, which is on the west side of Toronto. Okay. But now Etobicoke is part of Toronto itself. Okay, yeah. So, And I read your parents, they were both missionaries and your dad's an educator, like a science science educator or had some role in that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, my dad's a science teacher. And mm-hmm. um, he was also he also became the science coordinator for the Toronto District um, School Board, which is one of the biggest school boards in Canada. Um, so, and then after that, he became a professor of science education. So he, I, I grew up in an atmosphere where science was the coolest thing that you could possibly consider studying and why would uh. anybody do anything else? <laughs> so I ended up doing pure science. Um, I have two sisters. My second sister ended up doing a double major in chemistry and art. And then my third sister ended up doing a double major in math and linguistics. So nice. each of us kind of kept one foot in that camp. And it's so interesting because so my dad had three daughters my dad had six sisters Hmm. and his mother um did not work outside the home but she had a university degree in science education which was pretty rare to get a degree Hmm. in that you know back in the um 1930s 1940s and so Mm -hmm. uh, many people say well you know as a woman didn't you feel like science wasn't really what girls did and in our family know that science was something everybody did Hmm. (laughs) it just seemed kind of normal you had some very clear role models, some very clear examples that mm-hmm. pe- people you could model, you know, your own life off of. And that's, that's so important. Oh, that's really good. Yes. Are they still up there, your, your folks in, in Toronto? Yes, they're, they're still in Toronto. Yeah. Um, and uh, my dad is, has, has retired from several jobs, as <laughs> uh, researchers often do. Oh, yeah. Um, but he still writes review articles for fun. <laughs> he's always sending me he's like i just did a review on how climate change will affect soil where do you think i should submit it oh my gosh <laughs> yes. we're, we're bad at retiring we're just not good at it we just don't it doesn't seem i know to he tried to go back and get a second phd and my mother said no we are not paying for tuition at this stage in our lives second phd oh my yes. gosh is it orthogonal to the first one or is it going to be like slightly you know, what, what was the idea there? Was he going to do a totally different direction? Oh, completely orthogonal. So mm-hmm. he already had, he already had a master's degree in education and science and a PhD in science curriculum. And he, he went back and he got an MDiv after his first retirement. Oh, right. And then he was yeah. going to do a, a PhD in theology after that. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty different. That, that's, that can be kind of orthogonal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sort of. Yeah. I mean, he, they, he takes a very scientific approach to theology, but if those are your basis factors, that does span a lot of the state space, I feel like, of whatever abstract state space we're talking about. Yeah. Good oh, this point, is, yes. Oh, this is fun. I'm talking about 
I'm nerding out about uh, basis vectors with Catherine Hayhoe this afternoon, and that's really great. I'm really excited about that. Uh, so you did physics and astronomy at the University of Toronto there? I did. Yeah, yes. yeah. So it was um, it's funny because uh, I started in astronomy as well, like astrophysics, doing a numerical simulations of galaxy formation and things like that, smashing you know, numerical representations of dark matter galaxies into each other and uh, seeing them evolve. And so that's, that's pretty, that's pretty uh, so fun. in-body simulations? Yeah, yeah, in-body mm -hmm. simulations. Every particle is attracted to every other particle and, you know, you can do these tree methods and things. But, but anyway, what, what kind of observational astronomy were you doing? Mm -hmm. Well, so I started off doing uh, variable star observations, but then I moved into galaxy clustering around quasars, and I was analyzing CCD images from the Canada France Hawaii Telescope. Um, cool. And it's, you know what is really interesting? I thought that this would be a, a fun project to do sometime, um, to look at where climate scientists come from, because a lot of us do come from astrophysics. Yep. Ed, Ed Hawkins I mean, also. Ed Hawkins yes, Ed actually I think went yeah. all the way through the PhD before he switched. And of course, Jim Hansen, who's a well-known NASA climate scientist, he mm. began studying the atmosphere of Venus. Um, there's a lot of us. And I think there's a reason for that. And it's because, you know, the reason why I switched was because I sort of accidentally took this class in climate science after I'd already applied to graduate school for astrophysics. Mm. And not only did it shock me by showing me just how urgent and all-encompassing climate change was, but it pretty much is all astrophysics. I mean, in planetary atmospheres, in orbital <laughs> dynamics, mm -hmm. in cloud physics, we had already learned all of these things that, that make up the mm -hmm. physics of the climate system. In fact, the, the climate system is just a special case of the basic physics that you learn that explains yeah. how the universe operates. And so I think that that really gives you a good background um, to do the work that we do. Absolutely. Yeah. And you've already uh, done a ton of differential equation work and that's the bread and butter. That's the mathematical framework of it. So yes. if you feel comfortable with those, you'll probably be okay. Yeah. So what, what was that transition like? You, uh, you mentioned kind of taking this class with Steve Schneider and deciding that you would then go. So you went to the University of Illinois for your master's, right? That was kind of where that transition happened, where you kind of moved out of astronomy and in fully into kind of climate science. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, I guess it involved well, two transitions for you, didn't it? Because it was uh, from Canada to the U.S. So what, yeah. what was that big bulk, that big set of transitions like for you? Well, um, the class I took wasn't actually with Steve. Um, it was with someone who had just finished doing a postdoc with him at oh, NCAR. Okay. Steve was okay. at NCAR at the time. And had come back to the University of Toronto, a guy called Danny Harvey. And he was just absolutely on fire. I mean, you know, if you ever knew Steve or saw him speak or read anything he wrote, you just know that Steve was infectious in terms of hmm. his enthusiasm and his passion, too. Um, and so I didn't know anything about Steve, never heard the name before. I didn't even realize until later, you know, putting the pieces together, I ended up working with Steve on a project um, a number hmm. of years later. Um, but, but Danny was just absolutely passionate about this topic and passionate, again, not just about the science, but about the implications of the science. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just science for science's sake, it was sciences for society's sake. And it was interesting because I had always thought that the only science you could do for society's sake was medical science. Um, I don't know why I thought that. Maybe that's just a common conception when we're younger, but I thought that that was the only thing you could do. And I've never been drawn to medical science. I have a very weak stomach. <laughs> I don't oh, do yeah, well yeah. with Same blood, here. I Same here, yeah. Dissections, <laughs> that would find me face first. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, so I had thought that I could never do science for society's sake. So I figured I would just do it for, you know, the future's sake, because astrophysics mm. is kind of like a future science. 
Um, so, so taking that class was what caused me to, um, to shift, but I felt like I don't want to only do pure atmospheric science. I want to work with someone who understands the policy relevance of this work. I don't want to just do ivory tower work. I want to do work that would actually help contribute to policy that will make a difference to help fix this thing. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't just a matter of the program. It was a matter of the advisor. And I certainly had in my head a few places where I thought I wanted to go. I thought I was going to be heading to Boulder, of course, to study, mm. you know, at University of Colorado or mm. NCAR. But um, it turned out that the best match I found was for somebody who was so new that he wasn't even on the departmental website yet. Um, Illinois, the Department of Atmospheric Sciences at Illinois had just hired a new department chair. They hadn't even updated their website to put him on. But when I went to visit, thank goodness I actually went to visit, you know, you go through and you interview all the different professors and they interview you. And when I met him, uh, my advisor's name is Don Webbles, I knew immediately that this was the perfect person for me to work with because... Mm -hmm. His work um, was specifically on science supporting policy. So he had done a lot of the work on the high GWP gases, on uh, replacing the chlorofluorocarbons that were causing the ozone hole with much safer and shorter lived gases that wouldn't get all the way up to the stratosphere. Mm -hmm. um, and he was turning his work to focus on um, high GWP um, greenhouse, or sorry, I should say greenhouse gases that are in the, in the range between high GWP and CO2, so methane, N2O, and others, and how they could contribute to, at that time, meeting the Kyoto Protocol targets for the U.S. So um, I figured it was the perfect fit, and it really was the perfect fit because um, we, we still work together today. In fact, oh. actually, just before we, we got on our podcast, he just texted me. He said, read the email I just sent you this morning. <laughs> I haven't done that yet because we're talking. <laughs> you got a text but, asking you to read an email. That's hilarious. I love that. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's a sad, it's a sad comment on the state of my email box at the moment, actually. Oh, right. Okay. Um, and when did I say at the moment, it's really over the last year. Did you see my tweet about the message that I sent you about the email? About the yeah. <laughs> I'm, just, <laughs> I'm kidding. And did you happen to send me a DM about the tweet as well? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's right yeah so well, that that's that's amazing that's broadly called statistical downscaling right that process of taking larger scale climate projection information and combining it with smaller scale like weather station type information and and downscaling it to the kind of local spatial scales where policymakers and like you say other stakeholders could use it right Yes. Is that the yeah, that's the kind of broad, broad area. It is. Yeah. But but let me add though too is it's not only just the downscaling, it's the translation too. Oh yeah. Because yeah. the downscaling ends up with, you know, daily temperature and precipitation and sometimes humidity and solar radiation for every day going out to twenty one hundred for twenty different GCMs with um, you know, unpronounceable acronyms and all these different <laughs> scenarios, which used to be our RCPs and now our SSPs, but they're the same rate of forcing. And, <laughs> and what the, what the policy maker wants to know is, is are the, the tax day floods going to return? And if so, how frequently, or how many days will we have over 100 degrees or, oh, yeah, yeah. you know, how many times will our combined sewers overflow? So there's a, big translation step there that is often missed and that's I think where part of the art comes in not just the science because it requires communication and understanding with people with very different experience and expertise than you as a climate scientist and allowing them to guide the translation process rather than you giving them what you think they want them actually telling you what what they need yeah. um, but I'm really excited too about um, a new data set that we are bringing out um, next yeah. year 
we are developing these high resolution climate projections, not only for grids, traditionally they're, they're developed for a single grid. So each downscale data set is for a single grid. We're doing multiple grids. We're doing the US, Canada, um, mm. Europe, beyond. Mm-hmm. But we're also doing weather stations because weather stations are often what people use in planning in real life. All so right. we're partnering with Esri, which as you know, they run the geographic information systems and they have all kinds of tools like story maps and all kinds of data accessibility options that we, you know, academic scientists don't have. We're partnering with Esri to post the data online so scientists can download the NetCDF hmm. files, but stakeholders can go in and they can just say, hey, I just want days over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, of course, mm-hmm, the data is mm-hmm. Celsius, but you have to convert it too. I want, you know, or days over, you know, 32 degrees yeah. Celsius or below freezing or, um, and they can pull that information out as with the partial translation already having happened as opposed to having to have a, a translator in the middle, which is really hard to find because there's no field of climate services or translation mm. really available. And so it's, it's like we have a new discipline emerging that hasn't quite fully been codified or, or um, quantified or named or had training or certification or expertise associated with it. So we're trying to figure out if we can use technology to kind of bridge that gap. And I'm very excited about that. Oh, that's cool. So watch this space. Well, I imagine you'll, you'll probably tweet about it and oh, probably it's on your, on your website. So we'll, we can watch out for that. We do. Well, well, what we did was we actually posted on our website that if you really want the net CDF files, we can give you the net CDF files. If you know. <laughs> mm, okay. But but there's no <laughs> translation available yet because we haven't finished the data set. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. How was moving from Canada to the U.S. for you? What was that transition like? Um, it it was interesting because so when I was nine years old, my parents moved us all down to South America to Colombia. Okay. Which is um, a very different country, obviously, than, than Canada. And as mm-hmm. Cana- a Canadian, I love to travel. So, you know, um, I have family living around the world and have visited friends around the world. So um, the concept of another country was not so challenging. What was really challenging to me, and I didn't see this until after I moved, was that the other country was so familiar in that, you know, living in Canada, you go shopping in the U.S., you take vacations mm-hmm. in Florida, you get U.S. television programming and movies mm-hmm. and we do anywhere we live in the world. So it was familiar and people spoke the same language and people looked very much like you. But after I started living there, I realized that many attitudes and perspectives and opinions and, and cultural differences were radical. Mm. And I actually found it much harder to deal with than if I had moved to a country where the language was was more obviously different and the culture was more obviously different. Because then I would expect people's attitudes to be different. But mm. because they were so superficially similar in the U.S., I had just expected it to be the same. And when it wasn't, it was incredibly jarring. And the first year, I found it very difficult to accept these differences because I had these expectations. And finally I had to realize consciously that I had had these expectations that I was imposing on them. But if I had moved to some very radically different country, I wouldn't have had these expectations. Mm. I would have let them be who they are. And so I had to consciously erase my expectations and recognize that this country, and it, it happened once moving to the U.S., but then it happened again and actually to a stronger degree moving to Texas. Oh, really? Because I moved to Illinois first. <laughs> and then so Illinois was, was, you know, 30% of the way there, and then Texas was 100% of the way there. So moving to Texas, I had to do it again. I could believe that, yeah. I could yeah. believe that. <laughs> Texas is really its own country. Yeah. If, if you live in Austin, it's one thing, but then if you live somewhere else, it's, it's different. <laughs> um, 
consciously adjusting to allow for people's people's attitudes to be as foreign, if not more foreign to me Mm. than if I had moved to um, a European country, for example. Yeah. Yeah. How about, um, and I'm just kind of, I don't want to rush us, but I, I want to get you out of here on time. So I want to, and I'm interested to hear that. I wanted to ask you, what was it like shifting from kind of a more science? Hold on. Let me back up and think how I want to ask this. What was it like shifting into public communication? What were some of the surprises that you encountered there? Because not every scientist does that, you know, I mean, many scientists kind of stay back and they write their papers. So there was an opportunity that you saw there or a need that you saw there. And and be interested to hear about what kind of pulled you in that direction, what compelled you towards public communication and writing and the web-based outreach that you've done and, and all of that. Well, it was very organic, just like my move from astrophysics to climate science was organic. It wasn't planned at all. My plan was to do policy-relevant research that would inform mm-hmm. government decision-making. Oh, yeah. uh, but when we moved to Texas, and the reason we moved to Texas was not because I wanted to, it was because they wanted my husband. And, you know, both of us being academics, we have the two-body problem. And I was the plus one that they had to <laughs> accept in order to get my husband. <laughs> so. Right. Yes. So, so we moved to Texas because he was the one who was being recruited and we wanted a position at the same university, which we hadn't had before. And so we figured it was, it was worth it to go to Texas to get that. And when I arrived there intending to continue to do my research, I learned that I was not only the first climate scientist at the university, they had a small atmospheric science program in the the, um, geosciences department, but it was all severe weather. And then maybe I think one person who did tropical meteorology. Hmm. Um, not only was I the only climate scientist at the university, I was the only climate scientist within a 200 mile radius, mm. which is oh my goodness. enormous. Okay. Um, so within a few months of arriving, I got my first invitation to speak to a group that was not really necessarily on board with the idea that climate change is real and it was important. Yeah. And when I got this invitation, I thought, well, obviously I should say yes, because I'm a climate scientist because I know it's real and it's important. (laughs) So I should go and I should tell these people why this is so real, why this is so important because I, it took me a while, but the the penny had dropped by then that there was a lot of people who didn't think this was real and didn't Mm. think this was important. And a lot of those people lived in Texas. So, so I figured, well, I think it is my responsibility to, since I know, you know, it's like a physician, if a physician knows that smoking causes cancer, they should tell people that. So I figured I should accept this invitation. And so I went and I did my best, but you know, as we scientists do, I started with the facts, I continued with the facts and I ended with the facts, you know, of how we know it's real and, and, and a bunch very of light on the why it matters. <laughs> yes. <laughs> very heavy on the how we know it's real. Yeah. Um, but, but the response I got was very interesting. Um, people were curious, so they weren't hostile, they were curious mm. and they had a lot of questions. And I listened very carefully to the questions they asked because I figured they were asking what they wanted to know that I hadn't said. So Mm. a couple of weeks after that, one of the women who was at the first meeting belonged to a book club. And so she called me and asked if I would speak to her book club. So I said, 
sure. So I took my presentation and I revised it. So it would answer more of the questions that people had asked me. And then I went and I spoke to the book club and then I got more questions and I listened to what they were saying. And then one of the women there worked at the senior citizens home. So then they invited me to speak there, you know, a month or two later. So I revised my presentation again and I answered those questions and, and it just sort of, it snowballed from there. And the reason why I do so much, so many different things today, especially online is because I want to be very efficient with my time and most effective as I can because our time is the most non-renewable resource we have. Carbon is the second most non-renewable resource, but time is number one. Um, and so if I'm going to spend my time on outreach, still wanting to be a scientist, still wanting to do my scientific research, still wanting to contribute to the national climate assessment and um, science informing policy making and policy decisions, I need to be really efficient with my time. And so I've actually started to participate in research and to do experiments looking at what is the most effective use of my time for outreach and how, um, how can I use the tools available to us to optimize videos, for example, as to just throwing them up on the internet or compare the same posts on different social media platforms mm. and see which one reaches the most people or, um, do more talks via video versus in person because you can do 10 talks via video for about the same amount of time as one talk in person, not to mention a lot less carbon emissions too. So um, that's why you see the, the diversity is because I'm, I'm just trying to be efficient. <laughs> trying to be efficient, trying, trying different things. I mean, what I have heard in this you know, hour of talking to you, I hear somebody who cares a lot and I hear somebody who wants to make the world better, who wants to put positive things out there, who wants to fix uh, help fix some of the issues that exist. And it, I'd really love to hear like what, what drives that for you or what's the engine of that? You know, how do you keep your reservoirs of optimism full? How do you keep your energy levels full and how do you keep recharging yourself to where you can get back out there and continue to be this uh, uh, force for positive things and for improving the world and for wanting to connect people and wanting to bring them in. You know, you, you seem to be a very inclusive person. You want to bring people in as many people as you can into the circle, you know, as opposed to drawing a line and, and excluding folks from that. It's, that seems to be your, your impulse. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's kind of, it's a really, it's a beautiful thing to see. And uh, it's, it's been really, uh, we're not done, but it's been really fun to talk to you and really, uh, um, it, it, it's it's charged me up a bit too you know it's given me some optimism and some energy as well mm. and uh so what how do you do that how do you fill your reservoirs how do you keep your <laughs> how do you keep your reservoirs full well first of all thank you for saying that because even you know those thoughts are are part of what fills my reservoir right there uh -huh. um just i think at the foundation of it is something that we all have which is a tremendous love for this world and for the people and for the living things that inhabit it and even the non-living things that inhabit it too because the scientists we we love the the physical systems even that we study and we find them yeah. fascinating and and appealing um but you're right because one thing that we're not taught as scientists is we're not taught um self-care how to fill that reservoir there's horrifying statistics on the number of people who experience um, some form of mental illness in graduate school and I even, you know, during in graduate school, 
I remember going to the doctor a number of times for some really strange symptoms that in the end, the doctor just said, well, you know what? I think I had these myself when I was in medical school. I bet it's just stress. <laughs> and so it's like we're dropped off the deep end and you sink or swim and we're not really given any instruction on proper swimming techniques or ways to take a rest and take a break and take a breath. So um, I have found um, peer mentoring opportunities like the Earth Science Women's Network that I'm part of to really be tremendous and sort of helping you understand how to take a breath and um, thoughtfully trying to um, think it trying to introduce not only practices but time into your life that allows you to recharge your reservoirs so uh, a big breakthrough for me that might sound really basic and simple but a big breakthrough for me was I'm very rigidly scheduled because that's how you're most effective mm. but rigidly scheduling time off oh yeah really important so actually having blocks on your calendar that literally say not available or planning. Um, my family loves to spend time outdoors in the winter together skiing. And so my schedule fills up so much that usually in the summer, I actually block off potential times to do that so that we can just be together outside with, with no work and no plans. And then at a much smaller level, I'm setting aside time to do things that have nothing to do with work. Like I love to create things that are tangible because so much of our work is intangible. So I love mm. to um, knit and, um, uh, and crochet and cook. And I love reading books that have nothing to do with climate change at all, but I always learn something that's relevant. Oh yeah. Um, and, and spending time with, with family and friends, especially these days where we have to do it via zoom. I'm doing it even more now than I used to, which mm. is actually great. Yeah. Uh, it's important for all of us to do those things because sometimes I think more in the U S maybe than any other country, there's this idea that working more hours is better mm -hmm. and it's sort of insidious. It's usually not said overtly, although some people have been told that overtly by their advisors in graduate school. Mm -hmm. um, but it isn't necessarily because again, we're not just a brain in a jar. We're a brain in a human body and the human body has to be functioning at its full ability, you have to make sure that you have that time outside, you have that time to exercise, you have that time to kind of decompress. And sometimes when I've been worrying over a coding problem, you know, where my code just isn't working, doing the dishes is what helps me because mm. I'm doing the dishes and all of a sudden the solution just pops into my head. Whereas I had spent six hours debugging the code and I'd gotten absolutely nowhere. So being, um, Extending grace, not to other people, but to ourselves. Extending forgiveness, not just to others, but to me. Um, encompassing people in love, not just other people, but ourselves. I think that's something that's really, really important to do. And the older I get, the more important I realize it is. Oh, that's amazing. That was really good. Yeah, thank you. That made me think of um, when I wash the dishes, I sometimes listen to podcasts, uh, which is kind of what got me into this thing was I just listened to too many of them. And then I thought, I guess this is how people communicate. I better start one. I love um, that. <laughs> so uh, on some of them I've been listening to, they've been talking about embodiment, which kind of gets at what you're talking about, like listening to your body, like rec realizing that you are, like you said, not a brain in a jar, you're a brain in a human body. And it's always trying to tell you stuff. It's always trying to give you information about, you know, it, how you're doing that moment or maybe even past traumas and things can possibly be stored in a way in your body and that there are processes you can go through to to try to listen to what it's telling you and to try to work on those patterns that you've fallen into and past trauma that you've fallen into and it is about connecting with your humanity and i'm not an expert in it at all but it just what you said made me think about that made me think about the kind of maybe awakening we're going through where we're kind of realizing all that stuff's really important <laughs> 
think so. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And speaking um, of that, I feel like on the on the if there's a silver lining to the cloud that is coronavirus, I think at the global scale, many of us have kind of gone through a similar awakening of realizing that instead of, of focusing so much on what separates us and divides us, whether it's our national boundaries or our language or our color, the color of our skin or our gender or our socioeconomic status or all the things that we've been emphasizing that divide us, when when it really comes down to it, what we have in common is so much more. When you watch the videos of how people were living during the quarantine in Italy, in China, in Africa, in North America, we're so much more similar than, than, than we are different. And just recognizing that um, our loved ones, our families, our communities, our health, all of those things matter to us no matter who we are. And we react to things the same way and our humanity is much more than um, much more connective, I think, than we've realized, even yeah. though that humanity often causes us to focus more on what divides us than what unites us. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like that. And I could talk to you for a long time about all of that. You know, we could go on, we could spend all, all morning, your morning and my afternoon talking about it. But like you said, you've got that rigid schedule, which is how you stay productive and how you stay. And it's also, like you said, good, good self-care. Mm-hmm. Um, so I often ask questions about what you've learned and we don't have a ton of time, but I thought I'd ask you, what's something that you learned about science that you didn't know before you got involved with science, before you started p- pursuing it as a career? Um, well, uh, my dad did his PhD while I was in high school, and I remember being fascinated, by, all, but also incredibly intimidated by the idea that your dissertation had to be something new that nobody ever ever done before. And I remember asking him, I think I was in maybe grade nine at the time, I remember asking how do you come up with something that nobody's ever done before? I was, my brain just couldn't even encompass how you would conceptualize something like that, let alone mm. design an experiment to study it and draw conclusions. So for me, as a, as a teen, that aspect of science just seems so overwhelming. And then becoming a scientist myself, and I think actually astrophysics is a really good field to, to begin to discover this, because in astrophysics, if you're studying the universe, there's always new actual physical things to discover. Mm-hmm. So if you're in yeah. observational astronomy, you can actually discover something that has not been seen before. Um, one graduate student in the program I was in discovered a supernova, for example. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so you can discover actual new things. Mm-hmm. So my transition into science, I think probably what surprised me was how easy it is to think of new things. And in mm. fact, right now, I am overwhelmed with new things that I would like to <laughs> dig into and study. I have a list of potential studies, <laughs> you know, probably 30 things, you know, 10 unfinished manuscripts, you know, 10 projects in process, and then maybe 30 things that if I had, you know, a, a row of clones beside me, or if I had like mm. millions of dollars and a huge team of postdocs, or if I just had, you know, 52 hours a day where I didn't have to sleep um, mm-hmm. that I would be studying. And so I think that that really surprised me, but that also energizes us too, right? Because, and that's why um, it, it's so difficult for us to retire, to put the pen down, so to speak, to put the computer down, because we're driven by that curiosity. And the curiosity is what is what binds us, what bonds us, what unites us as scientists, and what we implicitly share um, that, that drives us forward. 
Absolutely. Well, look at that. You tied it up into a nice, neat little bow. We've come full circle now. That's like a really natural place to draw it to a close. Thank you so much for doing this. This was amazing. This was uh, really a lot of fun. And uh, I, I just, I had a blast. And I know people are going to like the conversation that we had. So thank you again so much. Um, oh, likewise. It has been such a pleasure speaking with you. So. Ah, thank you. Okay. Thank you, Catherine. All right. Great chatting with you. Bye. Great chatting with you. Bye-bye. There you have it. I hope you enjoyed that. My conversation with Professor Catherine Hayhoe. You can find Professor Hayhoe's website at catherinehayhoe.com and her Twitter Twitter, Twitter, Twitter handle is at khayhoe. I'm at Dan Jones Ocean and you can follow the podcast at Climate Sci Pod. Okay, checking in with you. I guess that's what we'll do this week. Yeah, I'm okay. So I'm tired. It's a little bit late at the moment when I'm recording. Um, we've been cleaning the house today, so kind of active. So I guess I'm, I'm tired, but I'm feeling accomplished. And I'm really happy that I brought this episode to you all because uh, I've been hoping to talk to Professor Heho for a long time now. She's one of the kind of dream guests that I had in mind back when I first started the podcast. So I'm really thrilled about that. And I'm thrilled that, uh, yeah, I get to, to share it with you all. So thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading, streaming, or however you access this. And thanks for subscribing and doing all the other lovely things you do. Do feel free to send messages if you have suggestions for future guests. Um, sometimes I am able to get those folks, so it's helpful to know Yeah, who do you all want to hear from. It's uh, good to get that feedback. Take care of yourselves. I hope you're doing all right. Stay well. Bye-bye.